Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. What will change in a world with warmer, shorter, and wetter winters? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary, people who are in power and people who are disempowered. I'm Greg Dalton. From backyard trails to the top of Mount Everest, skiing may be the consummate winter sport. I just love it. It's just my favorite thing that time of year when the valleys are green below and the snow's still up high. That ski mountaineer and National Geographic explorer, Kit Delorier. In 2006, she became the first person to ski down the tallest mountains on each continent. She climbed up Mount Everest and then skied down. I was kind of like, you guys, get out of the way, because there wasn't a lot of room up there. Most people will never try something so extreme, but volatile winter weather is having impacts far beyond ski resorts. If we're not able to ski or snowboard anymore, the least of our concerns will be the activities that we participate in. Mario Molina is CEO of Protect Our Winters, a community of athletes, scientists, and business leaders dedicated to preserving the great winter outdoors from climate disruption. We'll talk with Mario and Kit later on today's show. First, the science and experience of shorter, weirder winters. I was trying to describe this eerie feeling that I would get when we had these 70-degree days in the middle of winter. It just didn't feel right. Something felt off. It almost felt like you were in a strange land. Elizabeth Burakowski is assistant professor of earth sciences at the University of New Hampshire, where her research focuses on how landscapes interact with surface climate. Given this year's deep freeze in Texas and record blizzards in Wyoming and Colorado, you could be forgiven for thinking the future of outdoor winter recreation is as bright as freshly fallen powder. For this particular winter season in Colorado, I mean, as of today, which is mid-March on 2021, we're actually looking at the state. Yeah, they got a huge blizzard, but they're still well below average for their snowpack. And that's really critical, not just for their ski industry, but for water resource management. I mean, a lot of their drinking water supply and agricultural water supply comes from water storage in the mountain. It's also a really good buffer against forest fires that are happening later in the summer. And when you have a low snow winter, I mean, this can be a, a complicated relationship where you end up with dry soils, dry ecosystems that are much more ignitable. And that can spell danger, not just for ski areas, but for a lot of people that just live in the region. How are big snow storms an indication of warming? Because I understood you correctly. There can be big storms, but the total for the year is less. So it seems like snow is coming in different packages or different bursts. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a, a nice way of putting it is basically the wet get wetter, the dry get drier. That's kind of a, a common mantra among climate scientists to describe the overarching changes that we can expect in the climate system. And that's certainly true when you're we're looking at winter. Um, we can expect to see more winter precipitation, at least in the northeastern United States. That's what we're seeing in our climate model simulations. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get a lot more snow. Um, in order to get snow, we need that precipitation to come in the form of snow, not rain. And unfortunately, southern parts of our region and the northeastern United States are looking at a major shift, and specifically the shift from being below freezing average winter temperatures to above freezing winter temperatures. And that means that we're going to see more wind-winter rain, we're going to see more midwinter um, rain on snow events that melt away the snowpack and make it harder to maintain. Uh, especially for skiing operations. And it could also mean that, like you had said, more of our snow is going to be coming in these big packages, whereas those small spurts of a couple inches at a time that really help to refresh the snowpack and, and keep it nice and skiable, um, those are becoming much rarer. 
Um, there's been a lot of studies that have come out from various groups that have looked at this, and it's it all boils down to the fact that a warmer atmosphere simply holds more moisture. So if you have that warmer atmosphere and it's still just below freezing, you can hit this atmospheric sweet spot where you can end up with a really big storm. Uh, the problem comes a little bit further down the line, though, is keeping that snow on the ground. And warmer winter temperatures overall have led to trends in snow disappearing earlier in the spring. So it shortens your ski season on that end. And it also means that snow is generally also coming kind of a little bit later. Uh, most of the signal we're seeing, at least in the northeastern United States, though, is pointing toward an attrition of the snow season at the end of the year. So in the spring part of the year. It sounds like a lot more slush. Yeah. And I got to tell you, slush is not my favorite for skiing. Um, I am a big fan of spring skiing. I certainly have my, my fun days and the mashed potatoes and getting your spring corn, as they call it. Um, but overall, this, this slush, uh, skiing on a rainy, slushy day is, is generally not people's preference. And instead of going up to the mountains and, and taking a ski day or booking a vacation, they might cancel it and decide to stay home because really no one likes skiing in the rain. And especially not children. I've learned that lesson this year. Right. And I'm thinking not even just the ski slopes, but just around town, you know, slushy, mushy, dirty versus the, you know, white snow. You know, and there's something uh, you talk about backyard syndrome that contributes to people's attitudes towards skiing. So that is tell us about what backyard syndrome is. Yeah. So I work with a, a sociologist here at University of New Hampshire and and. Dr. Larry Hamilton is very interested in, in how people perceive things and, and what their um, feelings are when they, when they decide to act on a behavior or an action. And one of the studies he did here at UNH was to look at this backyard syndrome. So what he found was essentially that people that are in the Boston area are much more likely to go skiing in the North Country of New Hampshire is what we call it, the North Country, um, if there's snow in their own backyard. So it doesn't matter how much is back up at the mountains and the mountains here in the Northeast, I mean, 98% of the terrain is usually able to be covered by machine made snow. So they can invest a ton of technology and money in that equipment and put this snow on the ground when mother nature is not providing, but you got to get the people from Boston to come up there because they're, they're a big chunk of the number of people that come to ski in New Hampshire. And if you don't have them, I mean, the locals can only pull so much of the economic weight in terms of buying tickets and buying season passes. Hmm. We really rely a lot on, on people from Massachusetts and New York coming up to do their skiing. One report says that northern states are warming faster than southern states. That was surprising to me. How are different parts of the United States being affected? Yeah, and the northeastern United States is a hot spot for winter warming, uh, as well as the Midwestern U.S. Both of uh, those two regions are warming on the order since 1970. We've warmed over seven degrees Fahrenheit since the wow. 1970s. Wow. And for places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, I mean, the above freezing, below freezing line skirts right through that region. And a fun fact that a lot of people in New Hampshire tend not to know is that Pennsylvania hosts way more skier visits than New Hampshire right now. I was surprised to see that Pennsylvania rivals Wyoming and so because I, I mean, I'm a Californian. I don't think of Pennsylvania as a ski state. I think of Colorado, Utah, maybe the Northeast, but uh, there's sleeper ski state, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I mean, the Poconos are, are very accessible from the greater New York metropolitan area. And it, that's a day trip to get out there. And it is beautiful skiing when you get really good snow out there. Uh, my parents, actually, they learned to ski in West Virginia. Uh, so it's, <laughs> they also have skiing as far south as West Virginia. It's, it's not a huge industry down there, but they certainly pull their, <laughs> their weight on the Appalachians that they do have. Um, but when I think about what's happening in the future, I mean, this is, this is kind of a multi billion dollar question. Are the people that are living in the New York metropolitan area going to make the choice to continue their life as a skier by moving further north as the snow retreats? Mm. And mm. right now, it's, it's looking like a mixed bag. Um, some people decide just to give up the sport altogether. Some folks find another sport to partake in, like biking. Or they also just decide to stay home and spend their money elsewhere. And we're really not, not sure how folks are going to respond in the future, except that marginal snow years, so years like 2015, 16, that was a terrible ski year for uh, New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. Um, that could be indicative of what we could expect to see in the future. And during that year, we saw about a 20 to 30% drop in skier visitation in the state of New Hampshire. You've polled people in the Northeast about changing public attitudes, about changing weather. What did you find? 
Well, this was an interesting study. I, I was uh, channeling the sociologist in me and trying to figure out what exactly people think about climate change, especially if they're a winter sports enthusiast. So if they spend a lot of time outside in winter and they're a skier or a snowboarder, like snowmobiling, ice fishing, or even just snowshoeing, wouldn't they be maybe the person who would notice a change in their environment? Um, so we asked them that, like, have mm -hmm. you noticed if winters are warmer in New Hampshire today than they were 30 or 40 years ago? And I was fully expecting the winter sports enthusiast to come back and say, oh, yes, I have noticed that. Um, unfortunately, less than half of the respondents overall acknowledge the trend correctly. So less wow. than half were even willing to acknowledge that it was warming. It had nothing to do with their participation in winter sports. There was no significant relationship with that at all. Political and, affiliation? Did you ask about political we, affiliation? I was just going to say that. So we actually, mm -hmm. and this was um, part of the hypothesis that my, my colleague, my co-author had said, he's like, ah, it's going to come down to political affiliation. I guarantee it. And he was right. And, and of course, he's very well seasoned in the field. And it was. It was right down to if you are conservative or right-leaning, you are much less likely to correctly acknowledge the scientifically proven warming trend that we've seen in our region. If you were left-leaning and more liberal, you were much more likely to acknowledge the trend correctly. And then independents were somewhere in the middle. The New York Times dedicated two full pages in a recent edition about changes in the jet stream that drive weather patterns in North America and Europe. What are those changes and what do they mean for a person who loves to play in snow or makes their living in a snow-dependent economy? Well, it's, a, it's an area of active research. Um, the debate is whether or not we're going to start seeing this wavier jet stream. When we see that type of weather, you can end up in situations where very cold Arctic blasts can make their way much further south. And that's exactly what we had seen during the Texas freeze, while the Arctic itself was actually much warmer than average. And it could possibly mean that you end up with maybe one or two more big snowstorms or cold blasts, opportunities for making snow if you're in a, a region that might be having trouble making snow. Um, but we can't count on it. It's too uncertain at this point how this is going to unfold in the future when we have this type of sticky weather. So the jet stream getting stuck in this really wavy pattern. That's also what contributes to extreme flooding events. Um, so if you're not getting that cold blast, you could end up with a lot of rain because you're stuck in a trough where there's a lot of low pressure systems delivering a lot of rain. And it's just that pressure system is not moving. And then likewise, anyone who's stuck in the high pressure side of that or the ridge, uh, they get stuck in a, a dry season and it's perpetual. So it's not great news either way, I think. Volatility everywhere we look. So knowing all this, are you able to go out there and, and still kind of enjoy the moment, you know, skiing and being in snow? Or do you go out and say, this is beautiful, but it's slipping away? Are you How are you able to hold that moment, knowing what you know? It is tough being a winter climate scientist. And it's also tough because I, I study winter climate where I live. I don't go somewhere far away to study it. It's something that I, I experience very viscerally in every winter that I've had since I started doing this work. And I think the first year I started collecting snow data here was actually back in 2011. So it's it's been 10 years now that I've been collecting snow data here. And I've had good years and I've had bad years. And the bad years have been concentrated towards the end of that um, time series. And it, it's the worst days are when I go out and there's no snow to measure. We still make other measurements while we're out there. Um, and the best days are still the ones where we have a fresh snowfall when we have those beautiful events that coat the trees and a, a gorgeous snowfall. It's sparkling in the morning. It's quiet as a mouse. And mm. my son also wakes up and, you know, he, he peers out the window and you, you just get that little kid feeling. I still get it, even though I'm like four, almost 40 years old. <laughs> I look yeah. out the window and I just have this peace and calm. And I think in those moments when we do have that fresh snowfall, the thought of it going away is very much in the back of my mind. And I, I tend to, to shoo it away if it's starting to creep up on me because I do want to cherish it as it's here. Um, we only got to experience it a couple times this winter, but every time it happened, I was out there on muskies doing laps in our trails in the backyard and bringing my son with me, towing my children behind me on a sled and... I, I want to embrace every moment I can that we have it. 
because I don't know. I mean, based on the, the future projections for New Hampshire, the coastal region where I live is likely to be snow free under that worst case scenario. And that that's it's a tough reality to swallow and understand that my son might not have white in winter when he's my age. Elizabeth Burakowski's research assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire. Thanks for coming on Climate One. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about weird winters. Coming up, why a shorter ski season doesn't just affect powdered elites. The 150,000 people who are employed either directly or indirectly by the ski industry are not the people that are able to fly from one resort to another. They're doing it because then that gives them the access because they can't afford a you know, $200 day pass or you know, $1,500 season pass. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the changing winter climate. People all over the world seek out the snow for sport and physical activity, but few go as far as Kit Delorier. Here's Kit on her ski from the top of Aconcagua, 22,835 feet up in the Andes. Her descent of the Polish glacier was a first. Kit is the first person to climb and ski the Seven Summits, the highest mountain peaks on every continent. As a member of the North Face Global Athlete Team, she's deeply invested in sustaining all that winter provides. She's joined on the show by Mario Molina, CEO of Protect Our Winners, a group of self-described pro-athletes, dirtbags, and diehards who advocate for climate action on behalf of winter sports enthusiasts. Of course, Kit Delorier is more than just enthusiastic, so what inspired her to take on such a huge and historic challenge? I came up with the idea um, to ski the Seven Summits when I was finishing up my second year on the World Free Skiing Tour, and I had won the U.S. Free Skiing Nationals, which was held at Snowbird, Utah that year, and so I got to meet Dick Bass, and he was the first person to climb these seven summits we're talking about. And he gave me a signed copy of his book, and I read it that spring, and that basically birthed this next idea. And so I, and it, like Dick, I had already done Denali the previous year. It was kind of a one-off, as in not part of my seven summits project. And so I had six left to do. And when I read his book, and I picked apart the visuals that I was reading, right? Um, they all seemed quite skiable to me. Yep. That's how it was. <laughs> and when you skied down Mount Everest, what did you know about climate disruption at that point? How big was, of course, climate in that? Well, climate is always a factor. So I like to say, you know, in my career as a ski mountaineer, I also have to be an amateur, at least, meteorologist, <laughs> and above that with a snow scientist, and I pay close attention to my environment always. So, you know, if you think about it, I had to research when all these mountains would be skiable, which is, mm. if they are skiable, which is quite different than when most people would be going to climb them. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I am very much a lifelong student of my environment. And I actually studied environmental political science in college at University of Arizona back in the day. And yeah, so it's been a lifelong interest of mine. So it was a big deal. And on Everest, um, we were looking for the time of year when it would be most skiable. And that is usually post-monsoon. So summertime is the monsoon, and then the winter brings the cold winds that scour the mountain of snow. So we were aiming for the September-October timeline. Mario Molina, growing up in the highlands of Guatemala, did you ever dream of skiing down Everest or any of the other tallest peaks in the world? No, I can I can tell you pretty much for certain that I didn't. Um, I actually picked up snow sports relatively late in life. We don't have a whole lot of uh, ski mountaineering going on in Guatemala. And how did growing up in the mountains shape your work? You know, you've worked on climate change, educating people, now advocating, kind of organizing in the winter sports community. How did growing up in the mountains point you toward working on climate change? 
So I had the opportunity to live in Ecuador for about five and a half years. And that was really where it became pretty evident to me that glacial recession, particularly in the tropics, was happening at a much faster rate than what I thought than what I thought it, it, it would. And looking at you know, glacial recession, particularly on Cotopaxi in Ecuador, which I used to go to relatively frequently, um, made me really start thinking about what are the downstream consequences. And so thinking about how many of the communities that we visited were dependent on w fresh water flow from those glaciers in order uh, to survive from agriculture to potable water, et cetera, really highlighted the, the connection for me between the places that we recreate in, uh, that we have the privilege to recreate in, and how much, how many people actually depend on those, uh, on those systems for their livelihood. And I'm sure Kit could actually speak to similar situation in the Himalayas where you've got, you know, literally a billion people who depend on those, uh, on fresh water flows from the Ganges. Right. So to you, it's, 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 a, it's an achievement, it's an adventure, but to the people who are living there, it's survival there. Yeah, Kit, tell us about that because, of, yeah, a billion people from the, from the plateaus there get their water. Well, water is, it's the conduit for life everywhere. Um, you know, right here in the U.S., we have that as a major issue, and we're looking at the Colorado River not reaching the Pacific Ocean truly anymore. Um, I live right here on the Snake River, and I'm watching constantly every year when they allow and then cease to allow however much water flow downstream to agriculture. Um, and then up in the Arctic, I have done some research up there that looks at, frankly, how much longer we'll have those glaciers in the U.S. Arctic in the highest peaks, which happen to be in the Brooks Range and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And the estimates right now are that all the glaciers there will be gone in about 100 years. So that means no more fresh water flowing from the mountains north to the Beaufort Sea in 100 years, which is going to drastically change the landscape there and all the wildlife that depends upon it and the people, not as many people up there. Um, there, it's more of an ecosystem story. But then, of course, in the Himalayas, it's a lot about people. And, you know, you're literally drinking out of the river and washing your clothes in the river and everything. There's a reason that all sacred ceremonies happen around um, those rivers. And Mario Molina, a lot of those things, those places that Kit just mentioned might be beautiful and remote for many Americans, North, North Americans. Uh, for people who can't relate to those faraway places, will never go there. Maybe they see them in National Geographic. What is? How do you bring it home to people that are, who are saying, "Well, I don't ski, or skiing goes away." What's it matter to me? How do you bring that home? Well, there's probably between 36 million to 40 million people in the U.S. who identify as either skiers, climbers, trail runners, or mountain bikers, and who identify that as a, as a key component to their lifestyle and their physical and mental health. So I think that the outdoor recreation community is a far larger constituency than many people think in, in the U.S. And then coupled with that, just like Kit was saying, the downstream impacts of climate change, whether they be forest fires across the West uh, that we experienced this last season, whether they be droughts or whether they be increased frequency and intensity of hurricanes, it's definitely affecting us all in the U.S., regardless of whether we you know, participate in one of these sports or not. Uh, I think it's also important to note that you know, Protect Our Winters, we did a study on the economic impact of climate change in the outdoor industry. And the snow sports industry actually contributes about $20 billion to the U.S. economy every year. And in low snow years or shortened winters, that contribution goes down by about a billion dollars. And that's supporting over 160,000 jobs. So it's not only a effect on recreation. Like if we're not able to ski or snowboard anymore in, in at resorts, our, the least of our concerns will be the activities that we participate in. It's that at that point, it means that we've crossed a certain threshold where not only there's huge risks to the entire economy, some of the very systems that we depend on, water, which we've been talking about, but agriculture and infrastructure, et cetera, are, are in serious peril. So 
to me, the amazing insight that people like Kit bring into this conversation is to serve almost as harboring areas or, or warning us that the impacts that we see in the mountains are the first signs of much larger problems that we need to be thinking about uh, in the downstream consequences. We're talking about the future of winter and outdoor winter recreation with uh, Mario Molina, Executive Director of Protect Our Winners, and Kit Delorier, National Geographic Explorer and member of the North Face Global Athlete Team. Also, she has a memoir coming out in paperback, Higher Love, Skiing the Seven Summits. Um, Mario Molina, we hear later in this uh, episode of Climate One from Geraldine Link, Director of Public Policy with the National Skiers Association. I'd like to hear your view on, is the ski industry serious about using its power to advance policies that address climate disruption? It's a very elite sport, a very white sport, um, has a lot of, you know, a lot of powerful people are skiers. Is the industry serious about using its power to advance climate action? I think the industry has made a lot of progress in in the last couple of years in recognizing just the how existential a threat climate change is to uh, to its business model. There's this dichotomy where there's been great work done by NSAA, the National Ski Heiress Association, and Geraldine to particularly to involve ski resorts and the ski industry in. Uh, in mitigation efforts, in mitigating the operations of, of resorts. Uh, and I think that's commendable and, and really worthwhile. Uh, I think the next frontier for the ski industry is to really unite as a political force that lobbies for the right types of policies and the right types of uh, elected officials and the elected officials that will actually make this a priority at the national level in terms of national policies. Because uh, as you know, most of your listeners probably know, you can look at the, at the carbon report. There's, I think it's 25 companies in the world that are responsible for 50% of global emissions in the last 150 years. There's 50 companies that are responsible for 80% of carbon emissions. And I'm pretty sure that neither Vail, Altera, or Aspen uh, company are in that list, right? And so we could do everything in our power. The ski industry could do everything in its power to you know, drive their own emissions down to zero, and we would still have a magnificent problem in, in front of us and not be able to curb it. But if we're able to actually bring the industry together as a powerful force for policy change, uh, I think that then the industry would realize just how much more influential it can be than it currently is. Kitadori, your thoughts on sort of, you know, there's a lot of power and privilege in, among people who ski. Uh, some of them, you know, fly on their, their private jets. It's a very influential part of American society. What role do you see them playing in directing us toward a cleaner energy? Well, I see a lot of those people. I live here in Jackson Hole, so I'm very aware um, of that demographic. And I'd also just want to mention the, the concept of the white elitist for the skiing I do completely agree and understand that historically that has been the way. Um, I did not actually grow up skiing because my family couldn't afford it. The first time I was able to experience downhill skiing, it was like once a year when I was 14 years old. And then I was, you know, using borrowed gear and literally skiing in my jeans. And I didn't actually become a, a, an expert skier until I had graduated from college and moved myself to the mountains and, um, was paying my own way through life. So yeah, I think it's kind of myopic to think that somebody doesn't engage in, you know, mountain climbing or hiking or skiing. Um, that, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't pay attention to this. And, you know, where I live, a lot of us put a lot of effort into getting other demographics out in the mountains, experiencing them. I think that's actually a big push that's happening um, in our country right now is we're seeing a lot more people of color and people of different socioeconomic backgrounds being um, given a hand to get out there and, uh, and supported and uplifted. And so I'm happy to say that from my perspective in the industry, I see that demographic shifting and I'm encouraged. And that also actually brings me a bit more encouragement around this entire to topic of climate change. Um, because I do think it's it's the youth and it's uh, other people who have somewhat been underrepresented who who care a lot. They, they think about their lack of opportunities going forward 
in life should it be more difficult to protect their home from wildfire or get water or get out and adventure and um, experience, you know, what it, what it means to like get outside and, and have opportunities for grit and determination and character building. Yeah, I hear your point about, you know, sort of the typical profile of skiing is uh, there's structural barriers, economic barriers, class barriers, people don't feel comfortable, all sorts of reasons about access for why the sport has been that way. I know there are efforts to to change that. Kid Delore, you took your children to the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge when they were five and seven years old. That was about six years or so ago. How will skiing and outdoor winter sports change in their lifetime? It has changed a lot. Like my kids are, they love skiing and they've been skiing a ton this winter because they're at home for school and so they can. And uh, it's interesting, like we haven't, well, we had a great winter, you know, where we really are seeing a lot more um, dynamic weather pattern changes. We had a great winter and now it's just been high and dry for a few weeks and that's all that's in the forecast going forward. So, you know, they've been spoiled because here in Jackson Hole, we get great snow. And so they're just looking at it now, like, seriously, it's warm and it's melting and there's no snow in the forecast literally until the end of the ski season. Um, and that's been the pattern, which is what climate change is. It's, it's weather patterns over time. For me, I have my favorite time to ski. The big peaks here is in the deep of spring. So when the resorts have closed, it's April and May, it's when it's safest to get up high because we're having these diurnal temperature changes that, you know, mean that the snow is melting during the day and freezing at night and it's becoming a little bit safer. You can move really fast because um, we've got like 7,000 vertical feet to cover to get to the top of the big mountains here, like the Grand. And uh, I just love it. It's just my favorite thing that time of year when the valleys are green below and the snow's still up high and the climbing is a bit more technical. And uh, anyway, that season has pretty much disappeared in the last several years. And when I moved here 20 years ago, that was my go-to. And now I'm lucky if I can get two or three days of spring in up high in, um, in safe conditions, because I'll, I'll literally wake up and at one o'clock in the morning, because I usually have to leave at three and check the weather. And um, we, we didn't have freezing temperatures even at 10,000 feet overnight. So it's changing drastically. I think that the ski seasons will be cut shorter, but, and that, as I talk about my kids, that's the short answer, but then the longer answer is really what's happening with the watersheds over the summer and the temperatures for the wildfires. Maru Molina, um, Kit's comments about shortening seasons, the, the stress on on snow makes me think about how many ski resorts have gone out of business because of you know this stress or how many will go out of business because there's just not enough snow and they can't afford to make it by using fossil fuels to freeze water. Yeah, that's reality. And it's not something in the far future. It's something that's happening right now. I think what we're seeing in the ski industry um, is a conglomeration of um, ski corporations that are able to stay afloat because they have the debt leverage or they have the, the, the reserves to do so. And then a lot of the smaller family-owned or individually-owned resorts going out of business or being, or by necessity, being acquired and or shutting down. I think some of the big companies like Altera have been really conscientious about their business model and realized that they're going to have to change the way that people think about skiing from predictable winter season at my local winter resort that I can start November 27th and ski through March 15th to those that are able to afford it and have access to it, being able to say, no, if I actually want to ski, I'm going to have to travel to where the snow is much more like, uh, you know, surfers chasing endless summer, you know, the, the 150,000 people who are employed either directly or indirectly by the ski industry are not the jet setters are not the people that are able to to fly from one resort to another. They're the people that take on, you know, local waitressing jobs and help take care of the hotels and manage the hotels and small business owners for whom you know, they, in exchange, they get, they're the people, the lift operators. They're the people that actually make all of this happen. And they're doing it because then that gives them the access and they, they because they can't afford a, you know, $200 day pass or, you know, $1,500 season pass. But that is the backbone of the industry. And that 
that backbone is at risk from climate change as well. And it's I think that too often we forget to talk about the people that make skiing possible in the industry and and, and the hardworking people of the industry uh, when we when we characterize just the skiing community as a whole. You're listening to a conversation about the future of winter. This is Climate One. Coming up, more with Kit Delorier and Mario Molina, plus the view from inside the ski industry. I love talking about snowmaking because there are myths and there are facts when it comes to snowmaking. And I, I like nothing better than to try to set the record straight there. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of winter with Kit Delorier, ski mountaineer and National Geographic explorer, and Mario Molina, CEO of Protect Our Winters. In 2018, outdoor retailer, a huge industry trade show, moved from Utah to Colorado to protest Utah's attempt to rescind Bears Ears National Monument on lands considered sacred by Native Americans. Many ski resorts are also on lands leased from the federal government. Mario describes the efforts of Protect Our Winners to include Indigenous American voices and the campaign to conserve lands they once occupied. We really work to protect the intersection of um, public lands and and climate change and interests, and so and that a lot of times has happened as you're mentioning in indigenous lands. So uh, we will always defer to our indigenous partners on the ground in terms of messaging and in terms of the importance that it has to their own lands, rather than try and speak for them. Um, I think that there's parallel paths. Uh, there is a moral imperative to protect these lands and to honor the original inhabitants of the lands. And then there's also the very pragmatic reality of the marketplace and how particularly in the last year, what we've seen is that it's simply not long-term viable business model to continue to exploit these lands for and squeeze them for the last little bit of oil and gas that we might get out of them. And I think the recent uh, really failed lease program in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge coming out of uh, of the Trump administration is proof of that. It was touted as this major potential economic boost, and it was touted as you know, being the, the last big frontier for exploration. And there ended up being three bids for half of the lots that were actually open for the lease and drew... I think it was $14 million, which is really pennies when we think about the scale. It was which supposed it was, to draw $1.8 billion. It was supposed to draw $1.8 billion. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it's 0.01% of what it was projected. So, and that's because there was, the, you know, it's, it's a confluence. It's one, the volatility of oil prices and the drop in oil prices uh, in, the, in the last year, year and a half, the reticence of the financial sector to lend money for these kinds of explorations and the, the high risk profile of these types of endeavors and also the change in policy. And I think uh, coming with a new administration, and that's why for us at, at POW, one of the most important things that any, we can all do is to participate in our democracy because we see that elections have consequences and policies have consequences. And I think that the combination of the market and the volatility of oil price and the incoming policies of the uh, Biden administration all coalesced to make Anwar just not an attractive prospect for for oil development. As we look at this, you know, think about it's pretty dark, you know, the, the trends toward less snow, that the kind of shrinking industry, shrinking sport. Where do you find hope and promise as you think about this? Where do you see bright spots and say either find beauty, even when there's maybe some decay, or you find um, progress that, that, that keeps you going, Kit? Well, I'm going to just share a quick story. When I was up in the Arctic Refuge in 2012 doing some glaciology work, um, the PhD glaciologist I was working with then, Matt Nolan, explained to me that on this study glacier he had been working on for 15 years, he'd done ice core samples. And he literally was able to see in these ice core samples the 
impacts, the positive impacts, if you will, from the Clean Air Act. So there were less emissions happening up in northeastern Alaska after the Clean Air Act was established. And so the parallel I'm going to draw there is legislation. Because we Americans are fun seekers, uh, we are certainly going to take the easy path down, which is evidenced by people wanting to ride chairlifts up and ski down and uh, whatever, you know, eating tortilla chips and whatever else, right? We're going to take the easy path. So if we actually can get some legislation through that will um, help us change our habits and our patterns around energy use and emissions, then I do believe that that's the shining light. That's pretty cool. You can actually see policy in the ice cores. You can see tangible change from a moment in time. Mario, Melina, what gives you hope and inspiration as we look at shrinking, changing winters? The fact that it's right now, as we speak, it is dumping outside my window. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's really important to not get so dismayed and overwhelmed by future prospects that we forget to enjoy, appreciate, and be grateful for what we have right now, and that that is what we want to protect, regardless uh, of what you know the prospects might look like. So that's one, and then the other is that there's really an awakening in in America and in the world, and you know, starting with young people, but I think across all sectors of society, it used to be that even though we knew the numbers and we knew the science, climate change wouldn't make it into a presidential debate. Uh, and that was just four years ago. And now we have you know, climate change at the top of pretty much every policy discussion that's happening in the country in one way or another. And people across both sides of the aisle recognize it and are supportive of it. And it's a matter of coming together and making it a priority so that that I actually think that that is one of the issues on which we agree on the most. And it's a matter about how do we actually go about putting the solutions in place. And to me, that is really encouraging. Mario Molina, Executive Director of Protect Our Winners, and Kit Delorier, National Geographic Explorer and member of the North Face Global Athlete Team. Thank you for sharing your stories and insights on Climate One. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Climate One. A story last year in Mountain Town News said the ski industry is becoming more assertive in talking about climate disruption. The reporter, Ellen Best, credited my next guest with bringing more urgency to the industry. Geraldine Link, Director of Public Policy for the National Ski Areas Association. We've actually been working on climate change advocacy since the year 2002. And NSAA partners with the Outdoor Industry Association and Snow Sports Industries America. Um, together, we are the Outdoor Business Climate Partnership. And we represent the... Um, $887 billion outdoor industry on climate. And we do events and activities and lobbying in Washington with members of Congress on solving climate change. So just to give you an example, last year, we participated together in the lead climate advocacy event that series put on. Also, Citizens Climate Lobby was involved as well, and other organizations that are like-minded and we together had a series of meetings with members of Congress, and we had, I think, all together that day, there were 300 companies doing 88 separate meetings with members of Congress on climate. So we will come together for an event like that and try to bring a stronger voice through the entire outdoor recreation industry um, on solving climate change. We so, also so let me just jump jump in there, oh. Geraldine, and ask like, what is that conversation like? So I think of states like Colorado and Utah, where fossil fuel extraction are a big part of the economy. Also, skiing is a big part of uh, you know, obviously Park City and Colorado. So, what is that conversation like with a legislator in a state that where there's ski, but there's also a lot of fossil fuel extraction? What's that conversation like? So that's a great question, and I'll just share with you a story. So. Last year during this meeting, we were paired up with Representative John Curtis, a Republican from Utah. And one of the things that, that really struck me in talking with him is he got right to the point at the beginning of the conversation and said, look, we know we have to solve climate change. He said, I come from an energy state, but also in my state, tourism 
is a huge economic driver. And so outdoor recreation really matters to my state. My constituents, a lot of them are skiers and riders. And so he came, you know, right out of the gates in that conversation to connecting with us and saying, we have to work together to solve this problem. And just acknowledging that right from the start. Um, and as a result of that conversation that we had with him last May, we reached out and said, would you be willing to be the co-chair of the Congressional Ski and Snowboard Caucus? So we already had a Democratic chair, Representative Ann Custer from New Hampshire, and Representative Curtis said, yes, I'm up for that. I will, I will take that on. And um, not only is he the co-chair of the Ski Caucus, but in January, he formed a new caucus, the Wildfire Caucus, with Representative Joe Neguse from Colorado, who's a Democrat. So, you know, when you look at Boulder County is where, you know, his, his home base is, and John Curtis from Utah, um, both of them have said, you know, our constituents might have different values on some level, but they value outdoor recreation. And we also, you know, the, the, our state economies are, are very dependent on outdoor recreation. So we have those things in common. We're also both threatened by wildfire. And that's, you know, another part of climate change besides snow that's really important to the ski industry. So um, I see just huge progress there and promise. And, and, and honestly, it gets me pretty fired up because I have spent a couple of decades talking to members of Congress in Washington about climate change. And it seems like we've been moving at such a glacial pace for so long in, in trying to get solutions rolling. And just in the past year, I've seen huge change and, and willingness to come to the table to say, yes, this is an issue. Yes, we need to solve it. Let's have a conversation and let's see what our common ground is. One way that ski resorts respond to uh, variable weather is by making snow. And some people see ski resorts as energy hogs because the irony of, you know, burning natural gas to make snow because of a warming climate that brings precipitation, sometimes in the form of rain more than snow. So how do you address that? And there's incentives that every, you know, ski resort has an incentive to do what's best for them in their area. And that can be, you know, make snow burning fossil fuels. Yeah. And I love, I love talking about snowmaking because there are myths and there are facts when it comes to snowmaking. And um, I, I like nothing better than to try to set the record straight there. So um, just looking overall at energy um, uses, a ski area is not the energy hog that it's purported to be. So if you look at your average ski area, it represents about 10% of the energy use of a mountain community. And then if you dive in a little deeper and look at snowmaking, snowmaking represents 20% of a ski area's energy use on average. So when you compare it to buildings and lifts, which ski areas are running much more frequently um, or, or using energy in, um, snowmaking comes out third in that equation. And another thing I'd like to, to point out about um, snowmaking as well, is that we have invested heavily in more efficient snowmaking in the ski industry. Um, we also have ski areas and state ski associations who are working with their utilities to green the grid. So they're engaging on, on decarbonizing the grid. So I think it's important to keep all of those things in mind when you're talking about snowmaking. Snowmaking also helps take away some of the bite of a warming climate. And when I say that, um, you know, ski areas, they invest a lot in water resources and also water infrastructure. We make snow and that's like a frozen reservoir. So that snowpack that we make stays around through the, you know, late spring, early summer months. And so it actually slows down the runoff. And, um, and I think that's really important to know. Also, snowmaking is a non-consumptive use of water. So 80% of the water that is used for snowmaking returns to the watershed. 
So what's the future of skiing look like? Is it consolidation in the industry where there's a few large companies that own uh, resorts? Vail seems to be buying up everything. And, and so a certain number of skiers will be able to fly to Utah or Colorado or British Columbia where there's good snow and zip around perhaps in their private jets and not know, you know, there'll always be good snow for them somewhere. Uh, but there'll be a much smaller, um, narrower ski industry uh, in 10 or 20 years. Well, you know, I can tell you what we're seeing right now, and I think it's really important to talk about the pandemic and what that has done to recreation in this in this country, especially where I am in the West, what I see, what I witness. And so we have seen huge demand for outdoor recreation through the pandemic, and I think that people are very much more flexible in their work schedule today than they were a year and a half ago. And so we have been seeing all kinds of changes in the way that people recreate in the outdoors as a result of this pandemic. And um, it's not all bad, right? Some of the things that we've learned in the past year, we will take forward uh, with us in Skiria operations. So I see uh, smaller resorts thriving when people, you know, instead of flying to the Virgin Islands, they're, they're looking for local recreation. And, and part of that is from the pandemic. Some of that is going to stick. It's not going to change. And we're not going to go back entirely to the way things were pre-pandemic. But I see a place for those smaller uh, ski areas. That's where people learn to ski and ride. It's, it's tends not to be at a big destination resort, but those local ski hills and um, right now, we're seeing very strong demand for outdoor recreation, for skiing. And it's really been a salvation for many people this past season. And kudos to the frontline employees of ski areas who made this happen. They are truly um, appreciated. And we couldn't have done this without them. So I see the ski industry as an incredibly resilient industry. And they're resourceful. They change a business model when they have to. And I see a very positive future for skiing. Jolene Link, Director of Public Policy with the National Skiers Association. Thanks for coming on Climate One. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about the changing winter climate. You can hear more by subscribing to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Sarah Catherine Coxon is our senior producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.